0: Hello and welcome to the Practical Radicals podcast. I'm Stephanie Luce.
1: Hey everybody, I'm Deepak Bargava. On this episode, we take a deep dive into strategy. We explore what strategy is and what the left today can learn from a key victory of the civil rights movement.
0: Deepak and I just co-authored the book, Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World. We decided to launch this podcast to share some of our key findings from the book. And we wanted to share some conversations with leading organizers who tell us how underdogs can win against far stronger opponents. In today's episode, we'll be joined by two guests, Maria Poblet executive director of the Grassroots Power Project, will talk about how conjunctural analysis can help us become better strategists.
2: It teaches us to be flexible and be able to relate to opportunities we didn't create towards the goals that we want.
1: And Columbia professor Alex Hertel-Fernandez will reveal the secrets of right-wing strategy that he discovered in writing his book, State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Businesses, And wealthy donors reshaped the American states and the nation. Governing
3: not just as a way to achieve concrete social and economic objectives, but to really shift power.
0: In this episode, we're talking about strategy. What is it? How we use it? And how, if you want to be a practical radical, you need to get serious about it.
1: So to start things off, we're going to visit Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. These are the front lines of the battle between Dr. Martin Luther King's Negro Disciples of Nonviolence and the Uniformed Forces of Birmingham, led by Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor, who says, we were trying to be nice to them, but they won't let us be. You're hearing sounds from the Project C protests. C stands for confrontation. These protests produced some of the most famous news footage of the civil rights era when Bull Connor, the ardent segregationist who was commissioner of public safety, sicked German shepherds on protesters and ordered his men to shoot crowds with high-powered fire hoses that were strong enough to knock people off their feet and rip the bark off trees. Project C was the culmination of a years-long campaign to desegregate Birmingham. Protesters made headlines around the world, and they eventually won, they defeated segregation in one of the most racist cities in the country. (laughs) So how did black communities lacking the right to vote and facing overwhelming violence from the state and white supremacist groups win? The usual story is that the campaign was won by appealing to the morality of white people, especially in the North. That story emphasizes stirring speeches and appeals to the conscience of the country. It turns out that story is mostly wrong. Black communities won the battle by building deep unity among themselves and by developing a brilliant and ruthless strategy to win. Sometimes the story of the civil rights movement focuses too much on its moral claims and doesn't give enough credit to the brilliance, and I'd really say the genius of its leaders and its participants.
0: So let's take a pause here for a minute and go back to defining what we mean by strategy. We've been using that term a lot already in this conversation and people use it in a lot of different ways in the movements and the academic literature. So we wanna start here by getting more specific about how we define strategy in this book.
1: So we define strategy as a plan to achieve a goal under conditions of uncertainty with limited resources facing opposition. So that was a lot. Let's just unpack that. A plan to achieve a goal implies that the people in a movement have a vision of the world as it should be, that they don't just have a critique, but they're trying to get somewhere. They have an end goal. The conditions of uncertainty really speaks to the fact that People in a movement don't control everything around them, and they have to understand the other players. They don't just have to build unity among themselves. They really have to understand their opposition. That's just fundamental. And maybe the most crucial point here is the limited resources. People in movements have limited energy, money, time, people. And the key to strategy is figuring out how to concentrate those resources in order to have the greatest impact. So all strategy is really about cause and effect. It's the idea that if we do A, we'll get B outcome. Or if we do A, the opponents will do B, and then we'll do C. But it's it's this notion that you make choices about your actions and that those actions have an outcome, an impact in the world. And that's the essence of good strategy.
0: So there's a history of strategy in a lot of different domains. In this book and in our class, we looked into a few of those, including military, business, and political strategy. Deepak, you did a deep dive into these fields. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it was fun and it was really revealing. I learned in the research that most of the books about strategy and most of the manuals out there, they're really written for overdogs. The iconic book is Machiavelli's The Prince, which is written for rulers. And it's all about how rulers can prevent any kind of uprising or dissent or threats to their reign. And today we have these institutions that are often geared to training overdogs and how to maintain their rule. We have the Army War College, many business schools for the corporate class, consulting firms like McKinsey and Company, And I stumbled across a pivotal institution, the Conservative Leadership Institute, which operates a little bit behind the scenes. But the organization has trained over 200,000 people over the years, and their graduates have gone on to key positions in politics, on the courts. They run major conservative organizations. The motto on the front page of the website of this conservative organization is so interesting They say, you owe it to your philosophy to learn how to win. That's just such a powerful sentence. The orientation to winning, the orientation to power, and to having a philosophy, a a really clear and explicit sense of the world you want to build. All put together, they orient to training and developing people to do those things.
0: But it turns out underdogs have lineages of strategy too. They've developed ways of overcoming great odds, passed down from one generation to another, often in the heat of battle, mostly orally. And so a lot of that tradition gets lost if it's not written down. Deepak, talk about how you learned about strategy.
1: Yeah, well, I think I was like most people. Most of what I learned was not from books, but from experience and from mentors. And it really took me decades to understand that, whoa, There are centuries of knowledge and expertise, and I only got exposed to just a fraction of it. So we wrote the book in part to make more of that lineage, or really lineages, available to people who are fighting for social justice today.
0: So in the case of Project C, what was the strategy and how did they come up with it?
1: A lot of the story we hear about the Birmingham campaign was wrong. We rely here on the work of acclaimed sociologist Alden Morris in his book, The Origins of the Civil Rights Movement. The conventional story focuses on how the campaign stirred moral outrage in the North among whites and that white people played a decisive role in the victory. Reverend King justly gets a lot of attention, and he was an incredible visionary. But there were other figures we highlight in the book, people like Ella Baker, Bayard Rustin, who were brilliant organizers and strategists who often worked behind the scenes. One of the strategists who was pivotal in the case of Project C in Birmingham, who has a little bit been lost, uh, is Reverend Wyatt T. Walker. Walker was executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he was the general, the battlefield general of the campaign in Birmingham known as Project C. Coming into Birmingham in 1963 at the beginning of this campaign, the backdrop is that Reverend King had just suffered a huge defeat, one of the worst of his career in Albany, Georgia, in a campaign to try to defeat segregation. So Reverend Walker and his colleagues really were under the gun. They felt a lot of pressure to develop a strategy to win. They learned from Albany, and they took advantage of the fact that Bull Connor Was a notoriously violent sheriff, and that he could be easily baited, he could be provoked into violence. The famous children's crusade that brought young people into the struggle to fill the jails in Birmingham was a really galvanizing moral moment and a crucial importance in the campaign. But the heart of Reverend Walker's strategy was to divide the ruling white power structure in Birmingham. Most people focus on all of the mobilization and the passion and the energy, but behind it was this brilliant calculus of how to divide the white power structure against itself to allow black communities to win.
0: And that's one of the unexpected findings in our book, actually, is that great strategies are often as much about dividing or weakening the opponent as they are about building or unifying the base. And so many people associate the civil rights movement with soaring rhetoric and powerful marches, and those were very important. But in this case, Walker did meticulous research to really understand his opposition.
1: Right. His analysis showed the white power structure in Birmingham was divided into three distinct blocks. They overlapped a lot, but you could categorize them this way. There was the political elite, the people who ruled Birmingham, the city councilors and so forth. There was the white supremacist groups, so the KKK and groups of that kind that were organized around terror, essentially, and violence. And then there was the business community who supported segregation strongly, but who had a a determination to keep their profits high. Those three blocks together kept segregation going in Birmingham. They seemed impregnable, right? How could you possibly divide them? White people in Birmingham were fierce in their determination to keep segregation going. So Walker asked the question, how could you divide that ruling block? And he came up with the idea that a sustained boycott had the chance of doing that. He actually calculated the rate of profit for white-owned businesses in downtown. And then he figured out what would it take to create a crisis of profitability for those business owners. And he figured that black folks were 35 to 40% of the population, and that if even 50% of the black community sustained a boycott, you would create a crisis of profit. And that crisis of profit would force the business owners to come to the table. The boycott was key. The protests that accompanied the boycott, they shut down stores, they kept white customers away, And they amplified the strength of the black community, and they created a real lasting crisis that the business owners had to find a way to resolve. Here's Wyatt T. Walker himself talking to an interviewer in the 1990s.
2: Birmingham itself, the people there would never have talked to us had it not been for the fact that our movement was so powerful that that city ground to a screeching halt. There was no way they could operate, they could not open up because the movement was so powerful. So they didn't talk to us on a moral grounds. They wanted to do business, and they had to solve the problem of how they're going to do business and get rid of the demonstrations.
0: There's so much to learn about strategy from Project C, and so we're going to dig into that more in a little bit. But first, Deepak, I'd love for you to share a bit about your own motivation for studying and teaching about strategy. I remember when we first talked about teaching this class that led to the book, you had recently left Community Change, and you said that that experience had left you with a real drive to learn more about strategy. Can you talk some more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. And I don't think I'm alone on this, but I I was feeling a lot of frustration about the level of strategic thinking among progressives in many of the circles that I was in. I felt that sometimes we were long on radical rhetoric or that we spent a lot of time on tactics, planning the next march or protest, but that we were really short on deep strategy. The kind of ruthless, cold calculation that Reverend Walker did, how do we take our people, our money, our time, and concentrate it to win, that was often missing in some of the discussions that I was in. And even more, sometimes I felt our protests and our actions were about making us feel better so that we could tell the world and each other how angry we were by protesting injustice. But they didn't often move the needle in terms of getting our opponents to change their behavior. And they didn't sometimes really challenge the status quo. I would sit in meetings where people would go on at length about what was wrong, about a particular policy or area. They would present data about it. And then in other meetings, people would talk about what should exist instead, the world we want it to build. Important discussions, but what was missing in both was strategy. How do we get from the world as it is with oppression and exploitation to the world as it could be with justice and freedom? The visionary, the prophetic voice is very well-known and respected and gets a lot of attention in the history books, folks like Dr. King. The analyst who explains injustice, who presents the data, is also a kind of important figure in our culture. But the strategists, people who are just obsessed with the question of how to win, how change happens, people like Reverend Walker, tend not to get the same kind of recognition. But I came to feel that We really need way, way more of them if we're going to achieve big change in society. I also kind of was aware, and you taught me about this more, Stephanie, that the right has been doing deep, deep strategy over the course of decades. And I had a sense that there was like a lineage of people in our movements, people like Reverend Walker, Ella Baker, Bayard Rustin, from all different movements, who kind of been not always getting the recognition they should, but who could have so much to teach us today. So my hope with this class and with the book really is for a big strategy upgrade in the coming decades. And I think recovering this lost history of the genius and the brilliance of these organizers and campaigners is just an important thing to do to enable us to get better and to win today. So this kind of leads me to something that I remembered about when I approached you about teaching the class together. You said, Stephanie, that before we talk about strategy, we actually have to start with vision, that we have to answer the question, what is the world that we want to create? So can you talk a little bit more about the role of vision?
0: Yeah, and I think going back to Project C is a great way to talk about vision. In fact, the civil rights movement in general, because the civil rights movement was not just about winning the Voting Rights Act. It was not just about fights at lunch counters, those were super important. But the fight was for the world that people wanted it to be, the fight for Black freedom. And that's a much bigger fight than any of these smaller strategic fights in the campaign. And so the reason I think vision is so important, starting with that, is because we know a lot of people are not really willing to fight for something small. You know, I've seen a lot of workers who aren't really into fighting for a 3% wage increase. That's important, sure. But they will fight for something much broader, their dignity on the job, a sense of control over their work-life balance, you know, a real vision of an alternative. And once you kind of have that space to talk about the world as it should be, then you need to go back and talk about the world as it is. Where are we now and what it's going to take to get to the world as it should be? And that's where strategy comes in. Strategy is the bridge between the two.
1: We developed this term, practical radicals, to highlight the kinds of strategists that we think are needed now. Not pragmatists, who are kind of just focused on what can we do with the power we have, the next legislative battle, kind of have a very narrow vision, and not utopians, people who think of a vastly different society but aren't paying a lot of attention to how to build the power that's really required to get there. So one other crucial concept that you introduced me to that I found to be revelatory was conjunctural analysis. That's a mouthful. But it's important. It's an important idea. So, Stephanie, can you talk more about that?
0: Sure. So the idea of conjunctural analysis is really associated with an Italian theorist named Antonio Gramsci, who wrote about this idea in the early 1900s. And it was picked up later by a political theorist named Stuart Hall. And so maybe the best way to start explaining conjunctural analysis is to hear directly from Stuart Hall.
2: The object of my study is not
3: sociology or cultural studies or anthropology or literature, etc. The object of my intellectual work, insofar as I'm intellectual, is what I would call the present conjuncture. It's the history of the present. It's what is the condition in which we now find ourselves, and how did we get there, and what forces are creating it, in order that we might understand how we might do something about it. I first
0: learned about conjunctural analysis from Maria Poblet. She's a longtime activist, now serving as executive director of the Grassroots Power Project. We asked Maria to come on the show and help explain this concept that many people find challenging. So welcome to the show, Maria. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so great to get a chance to talk to you. So One of the things we wrote about in this book is the idea of conjunctural analysis, and I learned that concept from you. And so I thought, who better to turn to, to talk about what is conjunctural analysis than Maria Poblet. So I wanted to talk to you today about when did you first learn about this concept
2: and how do you explain what it means? I learned about conjunctural analysis as a practice doing movement work in Latin America, So I was part of the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance Coordinating Committee as the Executive Director of Causa Justa Just Cause. And we were in the process that would eventually lead us to building the U.S. chapter of the World March of Women. And we were in meetings that were planning and evaluating the America Social Forum in Guatemala City and the World Social Forum, which that year was in Tunis. And... It was just part of the culture of how people did the work. You walked into the room and they would open the meeting and people would give their name, their organization, and their assessment of the conjuncture, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like how we do gender pronouns. Like, you know, locate yourself on the spectrum and like give people an opportunity to respect and understand you. Give people... A sense of how you understand the moment that we're in politically based on your position in that moment, which usually is informed by the kind of organizing you're doing, whether you're coming from the country or the city, whether you're organizing formal or informal workers, whether you're organizing women who are in the sex industry or garment workers or taxi cab drivers, or whether you're an elected official who's trying to defend democratic space. All of these are positions in the same conjuncture and when you're coming into a planning meeting or an evaluation meeting you're leveraging that information to, to help you develop your plans and your collective thinking and usually what I noticed is they were building on an assessment of the conjuncture they already had and so a lot of the movements would then say what would we add to our assessment of the conjuncture, because they already had one and they would be adding elements and insights from current events. So they would notice some politician did something that they didn't expect, or some corporation had this new move and the political class was relating to it in a certain way, or some sector of people that had been disorganized was suddenly in motion, like people were protesting the public transit issues in Brazil, people were noticing that. They noticed that early on and they said, we're not sure the political character of that. These are different opinions we have or different observations we have. They were really students of the conjuncture. And that was part of the culture of movement work in Latin America. And I learned so much from it. I mean... I'll say my first impression was, wow, all these people are so smart. Social movements in Latin America are so much better. They're so much smarter. They're so much more intellectually engaged. They're so much less afraid of the world of ideas. But underneath it was also, they had built a kind of practice. It was part of their culture. It was part of how they did movement work. And there are people and organizations that made that possible over many generations of movement work. Sandra Moran was a teacher of this... For me, she was in the America Social Forum process. At that time, she was a leader of the feminist movement in Guatemala, and they were hosting the America Social Forum. And she would give these assessments of the conjuncture that would be like fighting words in the US. Like, the feminist movement didn't gain anything from this meeting that we did because of this, this, and that, and she would stay in the room. And she would talk about what it would take to get to that different political conjuncture where the feminist movements would be shaping the discourse by doing it in the room as an assessment of the conjuncture. So she would help people and she helped me to see how feminism could shape social movement discourse overall, as opposed to being a special plank and a special interest. It was transformative for me. And I've been trying since then (laughs) to learn how they did that, to learn how we might, in our own ways, in our own context, take up that practice and what we could gain from it, because it was so transformative for me.
0: That's great. Thank you. So just getting into some of the basics nitty-gritty, if you're thinking about explaining to an organizer or a student, what is a conjuncture? Some people use it to kind of explain a, a long time period, like 30 years of neoliberalism? Or is it like the last month? You know, what do we think of as like the time period we're talking about? Or is that variable?
2: I'd say that a conjuncture is a combination of circumstances or events usually producing a crisis. That could be long or short term. And we think about it as relating most to the short and medium term interventions. So Understanding the present moment is the core of it. We often don't even use the word conjuncture or conjunctural analysis. We use naming the moment, naming the political moment. Um, And we go from there to maybe we'll get into conjuncture and conjunctural analysis. And there are literal experts on Gramsci and Gramscian analysis and conjuncture. And I am not one of those kind of academics who's written a book who could go to the finer points of the way they're defined and the time frame. However, I would say, I've been using the tool in the field and finding it useful for certain things. So I could comment from that perspective that naming the political moment gives us the opportunity to understand our interventions short and medium term. And it's, in my view, a layer on top of a structural analysis about the foundations of society long term, things that we end up learning in basic political education that's usually pretty eye opening and transformative about class and race and gender, the forces of production, party systems, the natural environment, modes of consent and domination and coercion, racial capitalism. So these are the foundations, the structural foundations and they're long-term. And then on top of that, we concern ourselves with understanding the present moment. How are these structures manifesting right now? What does it mean for social movements? What is the uprising in this sector or the contradiction we're facing in that campaign have to do with the present political moment? What does it tell us about the terrain that we're in, how it might be changing, how it relates to the structural analysis that we have underneath it? So it's a kind of dialectic, you know, structural analysis and conjunctural analysis, foundational and and long-term and then short-term and medium-term. And then, of course, the thing about crisis is that it opens up changes that could be long-term. It opens up possibilities to understand and hopefully change the structures that that we're functioning in. Right.
0: Yeah. So we could have racial capitalism as a system for hundreds of years, but this particular period is a specific form of that. And it, it It has implications for the specific strategy of the moment. So, you know, you at GPP, you're working with organizations and activists on the ground. Can you give us an example of what that might look like of how a conjunctural analysis might change the kinds of strategies we choose?
2: An example of how conjunctural analysis can help us take a strategic orientation to crises is... In 2018 in Parkland, Florida, there was a mass shooting in a high
1: school. That is the school right behind me, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. If you ask people here in Parkland, why did you move to Parkland? They say it is for that school, one of the top schools in the state. Parkland consistently voted one of the safest communities in America until today. Here's what we know at this hour, at least 17 people have been killed, students and adults.
2: And the students rose up and defended themselves and challenged politicians to deal with the gun lobby. And they began what is now March for Our Lives, which is an institution that still exists, that's trying to take on gun violence and organizes young people. The Dream Defenders is a group that, that GPP had been working with through their statewide alignment work with other organizations, and they faced a choice at that conjuncture about how to relate to this moment, to the uprising of folks who had thus far not been affected by the gun crisis in the way that their constituency, young black and brown people, had been impacted. So one way to look at it, and it was very prevalent in social discourse at that time, was, oh, sounds rough. We've actually been going through that for a long time. And that was a genuine and real and valid emotional response to that situation from from communities that have been literally under the gun for decades because of racial capitalism. So it's a a structural analysis. And at that moment, the leadership of Dream Defenders, a primarily Black and, and Black and Brown organization, recognized that at this conjuncture, more people than their traditional base were being impacted by the problem that their base had been organized around. Gun violence and the prevalence of gun violence in, in young people's lives. And so instead of rejecting that uprising or sharpening their critique of how it didn't deal with structural issues, they affiliated with it they said we recognize this experience of being under the gun of being in fear of not having politicians defend us and that is our experience that is our racialized experience as black young people as brown young people And we're going to lend that perspective to this movement. And they joined forces with the March for Our Lives. And they still speak on behalf of all young people affected by gun violence, while representing the Black and brown people that are core to their membership and to the work that they've been building. That was made possible, in part, by their assessment of the conjuncture. Who could we win over in this moment towards our long-term agenda, towards our vision of the world we wish to see, that we couldn't win over two weeks ago. And how do we orient towards them, given the conjuncture? What about this conjuncture affirms the vision that we've been trying to build, the the political critique that we've been trying to build, and what challenges our view of of the political moment, of the opportunities, and how do we shift to take advantage of the opportunities and to move towards our goals? And I thought that was very brave because you could definitely be written off uh, in, in certain circles of the left for building those connections. And it's an act of bravery and an act of leadership to take on that moment to try to build unity in broader spaces, to try to lead society as a whole. And. Th- It's a tactical intervention in a certain way, but it relates to a a fault line that was exposed at that conjuncture that they assessed and related to. Yeah, that's
0: great. And so one of the reasons this idea resonates with me is because I think I used to have a tendency of just you pick your strategy and you stick with it, or it might even be be a moral judgment about this strategy is the best. But I think the conjunctural analysis approach says different strategies are more effective at certain times. And you have to be willing to understand the power that you have, the power that the opposition has, the balance of forces, and what might be a different possibility in that moment.
2: Another example of the conjuncture and fault lines is the pandemic. In the pandemic, it was so urgently obvious that we needed a different healthcare system that took care of people and not just profit. However, most of the unexpected gains that we made in many places were about tenant rights. If you look at the eviction moratorium that was won in, I know I was living in California and we won an eviction moratorium in California. There were multiple other states that won eviction moratoriums during the pandemic. That's a reflection of the crisis of the pandemic, the conjuncture of the pandemic, because what we had in terms of power was power in organizing tenants, in organizing around housing issues. There was a pre-existing level of power and the opportunity to move during that fault line towards our long-term goals, towards regulating housing in the market. Now, that wasn't the obvious primary feature of the conjuncture uh, in certain ways, because it was a conjuncture about public health and the destruction of the neoliberal health system and all these things, you know, but underneath it was the question of how much power do we have? How clear are we on the long-term agenda and what's our possibilities to move that agenda through the uh, fault lines that appear at at the conjuncture that we didn't plan on or expect. And, I think that's uh, different than our usual ways of organizing or traditional structure-based organizing, as some people call it, that I was trained in, which is you have your plan, you have your agenda, you follow your plan, you win your campaign, and when you're done, you win another one. This is a much more fluid and dialectical and broad way of working, which doesn't say don't have campaigns and don't have an agenda, but it teaches us to be flexible and be able to relate to opportunities we didn't create towards the goals that we want, which is much more how our opposition functions, frankly. Right.
0: right. They're poised to take advantage of crises and not always. They make mistakes too, but they're ready to pounce on those. So you have done a lot of work trying to train people in this skill of conjunctural analysis. And you said it's part of the culture in Latin America. That's what People do regular activists, but it's not so much part of the culture here in the United States. So, in your work in GPP or in your work as an activist and organizer, trainer, how do you help people develop these skills and the confidence to think about the conjuncture and move with flexibility?
2: I would say I'm I'm one of many people that has reached clarity that the way that strategy is being developed in progressive movements at the moment, like up to now in the United States, is failing us right? When you look at groups that are doing electoral work, our biggest complaint is we end up being foot soldiers for the strategy of the Democratic Party, which is failing us. And we want to engage in the terrain of elections because it is the terrain of mass politics. But how do we do that without just doing outreach to underrepresented communities so that the Democratic Party can say they did that. And and then our best case scenario is to say, well, we were the margin of error that won this election. Therefore, you should listen to us or we should have more funding. How do you get to a place where our community's agenda, our assessment of the conditions, the long-term plans that we have for progressive change and left radical change in the United States is, is setting the terms of the debate? Well, one of the things we have to do is become the strategists ourselves. And that's, it's hard, actually. It's not just a question of being in the room where strategy is being discussed, although that is important and really hard to do in the context of electoral fights or or other campaigns. It's a question of building strategists and building strategy and building the muscle of strategy so that we're we're clear, what is our hypothesis that we're testing? When we tested it, what did we learn? And having a stance of strategic inquiry, which is quite different than having the stance of um, ideological litmus tests, which is a very common in our culture um, in the US, left, and, and progressive sectors. We want to know who's on our side. What do you believe? Are we on the same team? And that's a, a rational question to have and, and emotionally intelligent. And then there's the question of what are we trying to do together? When we have done something together, what did we learn and where can we go from there? So part of how I think about it is for 10, 20 years, I was part of groups of people that were doing political education. We were teaching ourselves and each other to be critics of the systems as they are, to understand the systems, to be strong critics of them, to see how they manifest in our lives, and why we need something different—that was very important. It's a foundation, and being a critic of the systems of the, as they are by itself doesn't tell us what to do about it. We've come to this moment, maybe it's a conjuncture, where we're turning the corner and looking at what would it take to solve those problems, to be what Grace Lee Boggs calls solutionaries, <laughs> to, to, to turn to the problems of the structures and, and the structural foundations of oppression, of exclusion, of marginalization of our communities, and to start to formulate some strategies to address those, to change the power we have, to change the debate, to make possible the kind of change that we need in the world, because. Part of what we have seen as we try to formulate strategy is that what we've been doing are one, two, maybe up to five-year campaigns. Our campaigns are one to five years. They're hard fought, they're very important. We we can do really good, strong campaigns. And then when, when we're thinking about vision, the world we wish to see, which is why we went into those campaigns in the first place, it's like 50 to 100 years out, depending on how you look at it. So between the five-year campaign and the 100-year vision, that's the channel of strategy that we're trying to occupy at this time.
0: Thanks so much, Maria. It was a great conversation.
2: Thank you. Thank you for this project and keep going.
1: So getting back to the example of Reverend Wyatt T. Walker and the Project C campaign against segregation in Birmingham, Reverend Walker didn't know the phrase conjunctural analysis, but that's really what he did exceptionally well in Birmingham. He understood the nature of the alliances within the white power structure, which seemed like a monolith, and he saw the vulnerability that was very particular at that point in history, He saw the leverage that Black communities potentially had, which in this case was not political power. It was really their economic power. So it's such a great example of how conjunctural analysis can aid us in figuring out where to concentrate our scarce resources, our time, our money, our energy.
0: Yes, exactly. Reverend Walker studied the overdogs in Birmingham to figure out how to divide their coalition but we can also study how overdogs themselves develop strategy. Deepak, you shared a bit about your dive into overdog strategy earlier. Can you say more about what you learned?
1: So I really became obsessed with this question of right-wing strategy and doing the research for a class. I read military strategy. I sat in on classes at the Army War College. I read about how folks in Silicon Valley think about strategy. I dip my toes into the waters of some really dark and scary stuff that right-wing political operatives and strategists have developed over the years to create and manufacture moral panics that are designed to divide underdogs and maintain their rule. What I found is that some of the tools that the right-wing uses are actually really valuable, and we unpack them in the book in, in a lot of detail, I wanna emphasize here that we have our own traditions as underdogs and we need to understand them and draw from them. Those are super relevant and they're central, but we can also learn from our opponents just as they learn from us. They're not afraid to take pages out of our book and I think we should have the same approach. We're living in a world that has been shaped in large part by the strategies dreamed up by the right wing. One book that really changed how I think about this world that we're living in and how we got here is State Capture. How conservative activists, big businesses, and wealthy donors reshaped the American states and the nation. It's by Alex Hertel-Fernandez, who is associate professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. And uh, Alex and I talked recently about the interlocking web of institutions funded by the Koch brothers that has focused on taking power at the state level. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me on. So let's dive in. In our book, Practical Radicals, Stephanie and I emphasize that good strategy often involves not just strengthening your own base or constituency, but really, and this is crucial, coming up with plans to divide or weaken your opponents. The right has been really expert in this. You talk in your book, State Capture, about how Koch-funded groups have done that in recent years with respect to unions and voting rights. Can you explain? So I think the
3: conservative mobilization that I describe in the book, which includes a variety of organizations, including some very closely linked to the Koch brothers and their political donor network and others that are less attached, I think that that assemblage of conservative organizations really illustrates the power of thinking about governing not just as a way to achieve concrete social and economic objectives, but to really shift power over the long run. And that is to say, to make it easier for forces that you're allied with to gain governing power, governing majorities, make decisions, as well as make it harder for your opponents to win elections and govern themselves. And after the 2010 elections, there were a couple things that really stood out to me. One of them was just the the number of games that Republicans made in that election up and down the ballot. Uh, I'm sure you'll remember President Obama dubbed it his electoral shellacking in those midterms. But just as remarkable as the wins that Republicans had was the dramatic right turn in legislation that these new trifecta states enacted. Those were states where Republicans gained control of the governorship in addition to legislative chambers, allowing them to pass new legislation without Democrats being able to oppose them. And what we saw was systematic efforts to pass legislation that weakened unions, that made it harder for unions to gain power, to retain members, to be involved in politics, to bargain for wages and and better working conditions. We saw systematic efforts to roll back hard-won voting rights to make it harder for younger voters, voters with disabilities, racial and ethnic minorities to be able to vote in efforts to gerrymander electoral districts coming out of the 2010 census so that it would be easier for Republicans to win future elections as well. And while right and left and Democrats and Republicans have treated control of the states and pursued one initiative or the other, what was different about this moment was on the right you saw much greater coordination across the states in these efforts, um, that they tended to be the same builds, in some cases, even the same legislative text that lawmakers were introducing. And this really shows that it was an organizational source through which a lot of these ideas were flowing. And so that's what I describe in the book, the organizational source of these ideas and how over decades, conservative donors, businesses, and other activists built the infrastructure that, that meant that they could capitalize on this moment those gains they made in 2010 to really systematically shift the playing field in ways that advantaged the conservative movement for decades.
1: Alex, can you say more about what you mean by infrastructures? So what were some of the examples of the organizations that were funded by the Koch brothers that developed strategy and worked together to implement it at the state level? So the
3: infrastructure that the right has developed, again, over decades, encompasses both organizations that are involved in politics and elections, as well as um, ideas. And that was a real key innovation that the right made, was that it's not about having one major, large, mega organization, but thinking about investing in a field of organizations that can complement one another. Some are involved in helping your side win elections. Others are involved in helping those lawmakers, once they're in office, develop legislation and legislative ideas, and still others are involved in trying to build the case for particular legislative moves. And so the three organizations, which I dubbed the TRIKA in in the book, are the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, Started in the 1970s, and it's a network of state lawmakers, businesses, donors, and other advocacy groups that develops model bills and shares those with its state legislative members. And it's really carved out a niche over decades at helping conservative lawmakers to develop a governing agenda and one that increasingly is standardized across the states. The second organization that I focus on is the State Policy Network. It got started a little later, but with a big assist from ALEC, in part because ALEC leaders recognized that they were more likely to get their bills passed in particular states if they had outside organizations, think tanks in each state that could help develop the ideas that buttressed ALEC model bills. And over that period, SPN has grown across dozens of other states and and their think tanks help develop white papers and polling that buttresses the kinds of bills that alec produces the last organization that i study in the book americans for prosperity is the newest but in some ways has grown to be the largest and that is squarely in the Koch political network and uh, has been a centerpiece of its efforts to win elections at the national level at the state level through grassroots mobilization of volunteers uh, donations to buy campaign ads and campaign publicity materials, and then pushing for particular bills once they elect the kind of candidates that they want into office. And these three organizations, unlike what's happened on the left, reinforce one another rather than competing with one another for scarce resources. And I think another key innovation that they had was focusing on this organization in a sustained way at the state level, whereas on the left you've seen much more sporadic attention to the states. Um Particularly in recent decades, it tended to be the case that progressive funders and progressive activists tended to focus on the states when they lacked power at the national level or couldn't get things done. And then as soon as they gained control of the White House, returned to focusing on national politics. But These organizations on the right recognize that building power across the states allowed them to move a legislative agenda year in and year out and build that power to take advantage at key moments like the 2010 elections when they suddenly had governing
1: trifectas in dozens of new states. So let's zoom out a little bit. Why was this right-wing network so focused on unions and voting rights? This may seem obvious, but why was that the locus of activity in these critical years?
3: It's a great question. And I think it's telling because you look through Alex's history of the model bills that it's pursued over time and its emphasis on particular issues has ebbed and flowed, for instance, on immigration. In some years, they were more involved or less involved. And the same for, you know, issues of drug control. You know, that's had been flowed. But one through line has really been its focus on retrenching the right of workers to form and join unions and for unions to be involved in politics, as well as retrenching access to the ballot box really a clear through line to its founding. In fact, ALEC gained power and organized in part in response to the rise of public sector labor unions that were gaining control of key levers of government throughout the 1960s and 70s. And the reason why ALEC was so singularly focused on these two sets of issues, along with later the State Policy Network and Americans for Prosperity, is that they're key sources of power for the last and for progressives, more generally, um that unions represent one of the most important ways that working class and middle class individuals can build collective power. And by attacking their ability to raise funds and participate in politics, you're making it harder for those voices to be represented in government going forward. And uh, you know, happy to talk more about this, but I, I've done some research showing the ways in which these policies have both short and long-term effects when these cutbacks of the labor rights are enacted, that you see um, immediate declines in union density and union involvement in politics that, that are sustained over time.
1: Based on your research, does the conservative movement really try to understand the sources of power on the left? Do they obsess about how to weaken us? And do they do that kind of analysis more than the left does?
3: I think there are some notable examples. I go back to labor because that was just such a clear through line for these organizations that although different issues ebbed and flowed, weakening labor was such a through line and an issue, importantly, on which they could get consensus from folks who had very different policy preferences, from the religious right, from businesses, from libertarians— Attacking unions and, and voting rights was something that could bring all of those groups together, because although they may have had other issues that they wanted to pursue, they understood that to do that, they would have to elect conservative Republicans, and it was worse for them if they were on the outs of uh, a state government that was led by folks on the left and by, or by Democrats um, You know, I I just remember in the archives going through ALEC material and, you know, they had two or three issues that were entirely devoted to the teachers union movement. um, And, you know, pouring over detailed filings that the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers filed with the federal government to understand the structure of those unions, the places where they were weak, the kinds of bills that could start carving away at their strength in the states and really coming up with a multiplicity of different options. I think that's another difference is when it came to attacking unions that conservatives were really creative about thinking about bills that would pass when they had full Republican control, bills that maybe they could negotiate with moderate Democrats or or more conservative Democrats on, and measures that they could pursue through the courts, too. Really thinking about the whole array of different political battlefields where they could be pushing forward these ideas in a different context. And I I just have seen less of that on the left, at least until recently. And that's not to say it doesn't exist in some communities, but that sort of relentless focus on thinking about the sources of power of your opponents and thinking creatively about the levers and venues to weaken that power, I, I think that would credit the right with having established that um, earlier and, and to a more sustained extent.
1: Someone i ask you to editorialize a little bit here. Should progressives obsess about understanding the sources of power of our opponents and be much more deliberate about trying to break them apart to weaken them? I'm biased in part because this is the focus of my research, but I think we would do well to
3: think much more about this. And I would just take an example that is further afield from my area of expertise, but one where I think a focus on understanding the opposition and how to divide it and how to build coalitions has really benefited the left. And, and that's around climate change. And as your listeners may may know, for decades, there was a consensus in the Democratic Party and the climate and environmental movement that the optimal policy solution to addressing climate change was a tax on carbon emissions, and that was the model that was pursued under the Obama administration during that really small window in which Democrats controlled supermajorities in in Congress and and had a Democrat in the White House and had made the decision to prioritize climate change legislation. The problem with that, though, is it was hard to inspire supporters with that legislation. It was big and complicated and easily could be painted as a tax increase on hardworking families that couldn't afford to pay more in their energy bills. And it received considerable business opposition and opposition from wealthy donors as well, including notably Americans for Prosperity, ALEC, and the State Policy Network. And it was no surprise then when that bill was ultimately defeated. And I look at how a closer analysis to power helped inform The design of the newest legislation that was considered and ultimately passed the groundbreaking Inflation Reduction Act that makes major new investments in green and clean energy and facilitates our transition away from a carbon-intensive economy. And the theory of change is not one built on a carbon tax, but one on subsidizing businesses and individuals to adopt clean technologies. And what that does is it helps to one, create positive incentives to to start dividing the business community between those that can start building on their financial model on on the basis of green energy, making it easier for those businesses to grow, and also creating incentives for individuals to adopt these technologies and building a supportive coalition among them. And so I look at that transformation of sort of approaches to dealing with climate change A good example of what you can do when you um, have a closer analysis of the sources of power of the opposition and and how you can sort of cleave and divide opponents and build a stronger base of support in the mass public.
1: Fantastic. Alex, thank you for joining us. That was an amazing discussion. Really appreciate the work you've done for illuminating these critical issues and strategy. Thanks
3: so much for having me on. This was a great discussion. And congratulations again to you and Stephanie for such a fantastic book.
0: So I thought we could close this episode and talk about concrete tools for developing strategy. We offer a lot of the different tools in our book, Deepak, do you want to talk about one of your favorite tools?
1: So I came across this tool, Reverse Engineering, when I sat in on some strategy sessions for the organizers at SEIU who were helping to fuel the fight for 15 in a union, one of the most powerful movements that increased workers' wages by a dramatic amount. Now, Reverse Engineering has its origins in business. So if you think about it, if you're a car company and you're trying to understand how a competitor develops its products, you might actually disassemble the car and see how different things fit together, um, how the design works. So the idea of reverse engineering is to start with the outcome. You start with the car, and then you understand how you get there. What's the process? What are the steps that get there? What I love about reverse engineering is the simplicity of this process how it forces progressive groups to challenge our tendency to want to do everything it demands first that you have clarity about the outcome what are you trying to achieve what does a win look like how will you measure and know that you've achieved the victory and then it forces you to ask what are the necessary conditions not the things that would be nice to have or you could do but what is absolutely necessary to produce that outcome What is the A that will result in outcome B? So it forces you to really concentrate your resources, your time, your money, your people power, to make hard choices in how you use them to be able to get to victory. And I know when I was leading campaigns, I would often develop or I would see other other people develop campaign plans that were incredibly complicated, that had many moving parts, and that didn't really... Take that essential step of making the hard choice, which cause A is going to result in outcome B. And that's the kind of thing that reverse engineering forces you to do.
0: So final question, are great strategists born or made?
1: Well, we take the position in the book that great strategists are made. And uh, I know that strategy can seem intimidating but I've seen so many people get better when they've practiced. And in the book, we actually devote a whole chapter to how people can get better at strategy, how teams can get better at strategy. And this is essential, that we can actually engage in practices that improve our ability to develop breakthrough strategy. We also argue in the book that strategy needs to be democratized, that it can't be something that's done or held by just a few people, that Really, our strategies are better when a lot of people are involved, understand, and contribute to developing a strategy. So the bottom line is people can be trained in strategy. Tools like reverse engineering and the many, many other tools that we lay out on the book can facilitate that, but it takes a real commitment on the part of individuals, groups, and movements to invest in our people to make them be able to express their strategic gifts. We can learn from Reverend Y.T. Walker, just as he learned from campaigners that had gone before. We can create the Project C's for our time.
0: That's all for this week's episode of Practical Radicals. Please check out our book, Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World, wherever books are sold. In the next episode, we look at power. What is power? What are the different types of power? And how can underdogs use what power they have to win against much more powerful opponents? We're excited to be joined by Elise Hoag, former president of NARAL Pro-Choice America and co-author of The Lie That Binds. She describes how the radical right transformed abortion from a back burner issue into a galvanizing cause that fueled their rise to power.
1: Practical Radicals is made possible with support from the Roosevelt Institute. Harry Hanbury and Peter Kakoma produced the series, and Peter Kircoma is the series editor. Our theme music was composed by Christian Perez Yates and performed by Trio Gothas, with additional music by Mike Mangiuchina and Waxwing and Christian Perez Yates. If you enjoy the show, please follow and rate the show on your podcast app and share it with friends. Join us next time for more practical and radical strategies to change the world.